country music by women was like the formative feminist text of my life. And that's absolutely because of my mother. Greetings, hello and greetings, and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we try to use the gift of feminism to figure out what the hell is going on. I'm Laura Good. And I'm Adrian Dobb. Adrian, what have you been reading this morning? Um, Just a little book review in the New York Times. <laughs> I try not to read my own reviews, but kind of pleased about that, you know. Who pretends not to read their own reviews? I am not one of those people. I have become very good at not reading the comments, I have to be honest. Oh my god, you have to tell me how to pronounce this word Aperçus? Aperçu, yeah, aperçu. Aperçu. Okay, so like a proud mama, I have to read my favorite paragraph of the glowing review of Adrian's new book, What Tech Calls Thinking, that appeared in a little publication I like to call, they print all the news that fits, the, no, they don't. It's called the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can't even like give them that credit. But there are so many scintillating aperçus in Daub's book that I gave up underlining, but I couldn't let disruption is a theodicy of hypercapitalism pass. Not only does Daub's point ring true, ennobling destruction and sabotage makes the most brutal forms of capitalism seem like God's will, but the words themselves sound like one of the verses of a German punk socialist anthem. That just like made my heart sing. <laughs> Boom. You can imagine, I was pretty pleased. I'm, I'm blushing pretty hard here. It's beautifully written, and I thought that she narrowed in on disruption is the theodicy of hypercapitalism is such like a quintessentially Adrian line that like it really made me like her that she zeroed in on that. <sighs> so yeah, I'm 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 pretty um pretty stoked. Adrian does uh, really well with praise and uh literary agents call us up. We have some intel for you. Yeah, I'm deeply uncomfortable right now. Um, <laughs> also keep available. Talking about praise uh, for Adrian. <laughs> yeah, also also available if any agents are out there. Anyway, so yeah, today is the publication day for right. my book, but more recently it was the publication day for Sarah Smart's book, who Ugh. is our guest today and who we should really be celebrating today. It's a book by our queen about our queen. So who are we talking about today? Oh man, we are talking to Sarah Smarsh, who I have had like a Twitter brain crush on for the longest time. I mean, she is my queen. As she notes in the interview, we are both Midwesterners. And I think we recognized that in each other's work and became sort of online mutuals. But I'm so excited about her new book, She Come By It Natural, Dolly Parton and the Women Who Lived Her Songs, which, you know, I would actually compare this a little bit to Morgan. Jerkin's book, ah. Wandering in Strange Lands, in that it kind of blends modes of research critical analysis on publicly available events or figures, in this case, mm -hmm. Dolly Parton, with like personal autobiography and family stories and family history and that kind of stuff. And I think like Morgan, Sarah uses that blending of crafts to really illuminating effect. And she creates a book that I absolutely could not put down. I mean, it was so beautiful. Yeah, I But agree. what did you think when you were reading this book, Adrian? I mean, apart from the fact that I'm a huge Dolly Parton fan. You kept it together remarkably well. Can you like be a little bit more honest about your feelings for Dolly Parton now that Sarah's not here? I mean, I'll say that I was kicked out of Dollywood once. Say more. <laughs> in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. So... <laughs> 
No, I will not. That's between me and my confessor. But yeah, so I'm a big Dolly fan. Uh At the same time, I'm not a Midwesterner, although as a German person, I feel like I... I was going to say, you do really well there. Yeah, yeah. I feel like all you do is like eat potatoes and be sad, right? So I feel like... I mean, you're stoic and uncomfortable with praise, so yeah, yeah, okay. I'm going to do great. Just great. Yeah. Anyway, so I am a child of the 80s. So I think I came sort of temporarily out of the neck of the woods that Sarah's describing. I'm not a dollyist in that way. I'm not a specialist in the ways of the part. I did think it was noticeable that like on the one hand, like Dolly becomes big in the 70s, but Sarah really centers the story around the 80s, sort of when she starts making the Mm -hmm. leap into Hollywood. And I think that sort of spoke to me really greatly in the sense that I really felt that there's this moment at which Dolly Parton sort of becomes a way in which a certain kind of femininity is articulated in the United States and is also policed, right? Like she's always an object of, of veneration as well as of ridicule. And that's, of course, why a gay man like myself loves her so much that so much shit has thrown her away. She's oh. a gay icon. And like all gay icons, she's been through some shit. That says a lot about how gay icons come to be. I'm applying that template onto like Judy Garland and oh, Liza yeah. Minnelli. And yeah, that formula holds up. Yeah, you have to be mistreated. And a certain kind of artifice is important. And a certain kind of victimhood, frankly, is important. But a victimhood mm-hmm. that knows how to self-empower. Mm. I mean, Dolly, more so than, let's say, Whitney Houston, for instance, who sort of an artist of the same era, feels like she kind of loses control of her narrative after a certain while, right? Dolly is in some way, I think, sort of the uber icon precisely because she never lets go, right? Like, she's mm. always in control of this. And even as the sort of country establishment throws, like, the worst sexist shit at her, even at a moment in which she basically functions as a punchline on, like, Letterman and Leno and whatever, mm. she's fully in control of this product that she's selling. I don't think that anyone who enjoys an evening of drag could look at that and not come away with the idea that this is a kindred spirit. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And it says a lot about her appeal to women, too. I'm thinking about an article by Rachel Kadzi-Gansa that we read in my Feminist First Person essay class last week about Beyonce and about how one of the things that women, and in particular black women, love about Beyonce is her ability to be on a pedestal yeah. and so to represent a kind of aspirationalism that simply isn't accessible to your average woman. And I think so too with Dolly. Yeah, yeah. She does represent a kind of aspirationalism that is best represented by what you just characterized, which is sort of like always being one laugh ahead of her critics. Exactly. Like she is always in control of the narrative. She is always prepared to make a joke of herself before anybody else can make a joke of her. And she has spinned this into a kind of superpower that has afforded her a 50 year career at this point, which is almost unheard of in the American entertainment industry. And I guess there is also the question of what kind of whiteness she embodies, right? I think that's something that we need to talk about Mm -hmm. as well, given Mm -hmm. that after a couple of episodes where this maybe wasn't quite at the forefront, you know, this was two white people talking to a white woman about a white woman's music, Mm -hmm. which is something that we generally try to avoid on this podcast, but I'll make an exception for Dolly. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that Sarah gets at in her book about like, there's almost kind of an alternative white femininity that isn't quite as in league with white supremacy or might not be quite as in league with white supremacy. Almost a kind of a counter proposal about what if we did it like this, a kind of feisty working class cynical kind of femininity that may be a little less easily co-opted in kind of white identity politics and white purity politics above all, right? Like Dolly Parton is never pure. Yeah, her sexuality like can't be enlisted into the mission of white supremacy in the way that white female sexuality so often is. That's interesting. Yeah, thank you. That's the point I was trying to make for a minute there. (laughs) Sorry, glad you got me there or you got there. But that's exactly it, right? That you can still, of course, advocate for yourself and you can still identify as a victim or something like that. 
but you are less likely to be positioned as the quintessential victim by a power structure. That's well said. And I do think the way that Dolly sort of puts herself out there, it does have a kind of political edge to it that can't quite put my finger on it yet, but like that's there too. And I think that's another thing that I find really exciting about Dolly. And that's why perspective that Sarah brings to it of like, you know, generations of women in her family relating to this icon. What she learned from seeing her mother and her grandmother cry in the car to Dolly's songs. Yeah. Sort of origin moments. I think that that really gets at something about Dolly Parton that wouldn't necessarily be true for some equally great artists of that era, I would say. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I also think Sarah Smarsh hardly needs us to amateurly try to encapsulate the greatness of Dolly Parton when she has already dropped, you know, 200 hot pages on the subject. (laughs) So for anybody who wants to go deep nerd on the world of Dolly, highly recommend Sarah's book. I also highly recommend Sarah's first book, Heartland, which was really decorated and took her 15 years to write and was just incredible. She's been someone who I've clicked on anything she's written for a long time now. So... I feel like we should take it take it to the bridge. You yeah, know? take it to the bridge. Dolly style. Take it to the bridge. Yeah. Thank you so much for tuning in and making time for us when time is hard to come by these days. It's a really weird-ass season in America, and we hope we can bring you a little bit of like joy and laughter and a productive kind of distraction that still keeps you thinking. Yeah, just sail away with us. With Dolly, into Dollywood. Okay, let's turn off my microphone so I can learn why you were kicked out of Dollywood. <laughs> Enjoy our conversation. With Sarah Smarsh. Smarsh, many have been the years I have hoped to get to talk to you like this. I'm so excited we were able to connect. Likewise, Laura, truly. I think you know I'm a fan of your work and thinking, and I was I was excited to get the call. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Adrian will lurk in the background like a good man for a little bit <laughs> while we talk. I was trying to retrace how you and I first encountered one another, so I'll give you my version of it, and then you can fact check it. What I remember is maybe, I can't remember who started following who first, but I noticed you on Twitter around the time my essay on Lifetime came out, I think in 2016, and it was around that time that I discovered your absolutely ground-shifting essay that I now teach every year, Poor Teeth. Is that about what you remember? What do you remember? Oh, gosh. Well, thank you for the good words about my work. And yeah, I knew that it was on Twitter. And I want to say that the first kind of personal line of connection was about the Midwest even more more broadly than the journalism or letters. The great universe of Twitter. (laughs) So you're speaking to us from Kansas. Yes. It would feel like a cliche to say that Kansas is like another character in all of your work, and yet it remains. I want to talk about your Dolly book. I also just want to talk about your last five years in general. Let's start with Dolly. What are your earliest memories of Dolly Parton in your life? Oh gosh. You know, I would say it's sort of like a murky, amorphous 
blurred memory with two parts, one being my grandmother's Dolly Parton tapes playing in our beater cars rolling down Kansas highways, and the other being little boys sticking balloons up their shirts and pretending like they had big tits and saying, I'm Dolly Parton. Or there was like this joke where this is in the eighties when I was a wee lass and they would like flip their hand upside down and have their middle finger extended and their other fingers bent, if that makes sense. And if you do that, it creates this sort of visual and the joke is, Hey, what is this? And the punchline is Dolly Parton standing behind a tree. And so just the fabric of 1980s pop culture, which, you know, most American kids were steeped in is just interwoven with kind of sad boob jokes that became synonymous Mm -hmm. with this legendary artist. And then meanwhile, the women in my family were listening to her music and I was absorbing the incredible storytelling that she gave us. This book started as a series of essays for a small magazine, right? Can you talk a little bit about that journey? Sure. So in 2016, we might think of that as the year that began our downward slide toward Mm -hmm. current times. So of course there was an election afoot and I saw that Dolly Parton was going out on tour for the first time in many years. I'd never seen her live. And it got me thinking about, you know, I suddenly had this sort of, as a woman in my thirties, a kind of feminist vantage. And I was sort of rethinking Dolly Parton. I hadn't really thought much about her in many years since that upbringing that I just described. And Concurrently, I was on deadline for my memoir, which at the time I sort of assumed might be my life's work. It was something I had been working on writing for many years. And Mm -hmm. in 2015, I'd finally gotten, you know, I had like the agent and the book deal. And and so I was supposed to be turning in this manuscript and we're going back and forth. I was already actually past the original kind of hoped for deadline. And I saw this great magazine that I had followed for many years called No Depression, which covers roots music. When I was an early kind of cub reporter covering music and arts and culture, occasionally for alt-weeklies would be referred to as alt-country music, the sort of the province of No Depression. And I noticed that they had a brand new fellowship by way of their funding foundation that was essentially to allow a writer to write in depth over the course of a year in quarterly installments about something to do with the intersection between roots or country music and social issues, broader culture, the stuff of our lives. And I wanted to write about Dolly Parton as like a feminist icon so bad because that's what was sort of revealing itself to me. But I was like, shit, I don't have time for such things right now. But of course I applied anyway, and then I got it, and um, which was a great fortune, but it was also presented some intense challenges because I was working on my book Heartland that came out in 2018. So I would kind of, in between that work, bang out a bunch of research and writing about Dolly Parton. The good news is it's super fun and easy to research and write Dolly Parton in contrast to digging up one's own personal family traumas. So so it kind of served as a good palate cleanser. And then that was published by No Depression in print only, which is another reason that I really like their operation and their kind of anachronistic ways of doing things over the course of the year 2017. So it was really written and considered conceived at the dawn of the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. Trump's on TV saying grab him by the pussy. Meanwhile, there are all these unfortunate tropes about rural America that 
you know, a place I come from and that Dolly Parton also comes from that politically had to do with hate and nastiness. And I Mm -hmm. saw her as sort of the antithesis of that coming from the same space as Trump's supposed base. So that's how it came to be. Mm. Initially, I thought, oh, wow, this is such a different kind of book from Heartland. But One thing that really struck me in both of them is sort of the centrality of the 80s of sort of diverging paths. You know, I know Dolly Parton mostly through the music, which, of course, is like a lot of the iconic stuff from the 70s. But I think the book makes a really good case that she becomes this cultural touchstone really in the 80s, right? Precisely where she sort of starts presenting herself as kind of a work in progress, as someone who is sort of remaking herself in order to be essentially a commodity and who also reflects on working conditions for women at a time when that sort of discourse is only in its infancy. But of course, also investing, right, in Pigeon Forge at a time when the disinvestment that you've described elsewhere sort of was at its peak, right? Do you sometimes think of this as a extension of that? Or were there things about Dolly's career that kind of changed the earlier narrative for you? Well, I think that your earlier points about just what each decade means to her evolution are spot on. The 1980s was an auspicious moment in popular culture for feminism in a way that has everything to do with evolution of her career in that there had been all these incredible gains in terms of policy and to some extent public awareness about the oppression of women in the 1970s and then that sort of sets the stage for women like her to burst forth and truly shine in the 80s so in 1980 the year that I was born she of course starred in 9 to 5 which I think sort of set the tone for that decade of at least the image that we have today of what a feminist in that decade was. It's quite narrow, of course. The three main characters were all white, for one thing, and they were all working in an office for another. But her character, Dora Lee, came from a working class background, and she's sort of the low on the totem pole secretary who is sexualized and gossiped about. And that was the role that she played over and over in iconic movies throughout the 80s, which was really the decade of her Hollywood career, whether that's Steel Magnolias or... That's the Little House in Texas. Yes. And, you know, that also happened to be the moment that I was sort of coming into awareness, which is, I'm sure, one of the reasons that I'm best able to highlight that decade. But it's, you know, I talk in the book about how there was this sort of sweet spot that was Mm my 1980s childhood and 1990s adolescence where there were these strong, bold, not to say that there aren't today, but but there was this moment between gains that the feminist movement made and the incredible successes that the backlash against that movement has had. There was a brief moment where if you were fortunate enough to be growing up as a female, of course, amid ongoing sexism and misogyny, but nonetheless, there was a space where like, women were reigning on country music. That's not even true today. Like 10% of radio plays on country radio are female artists. So it was something about that moment and Kairos of like the timing with her coming into her own as a woman. She turned 40 in 1986. And so that's when she's like on Donahue and Mm -hmm. Oprah. And she was like fully formed as a human at the perfect moment to rise to that occasion. Fully formed as a human and also... 
This is tricky. I mean, I think of Dolly as someone who is still incredibly youthful and sexy and certainly was so at 40 years of age, but that is also the point at which our culture deems most women sexually useless. So that's not quite a question, but just an observation. And another thing that I was thinking about was just like how grandly her boobs factor into this discussion, which is something that I think you bring a lot of really excellent critical light upon in your book. Like, so much of this brilliant woman's entire catalog and career, like, people just couldn't even deal with it because she had these boobs. Like, can you talk a little bit about how Dolly Parton's breasts have existed in the public imagination and how they have evolved, as you argue, as we've grown more aware of concepts like slut shaming? You know, this is a moment where I pause and think, never did I think that I would be answering (laughs) this question. (laughs) And like, my life is amazing and I'm so grateful for it. I'm so grateful to like correct the story about Dolly's boobs right now in 2020. Right? Yes. So like, the boob narrative. So it occurred to me in that moment when I was working on this at the time series of essays for magazine and considering her relationship to culture is like, what's going on with those boobs? I mean, yes, her figure is notable and it is unusual, Mm -hmm. but that's true for a lot of people in different ways. Lots of people have big boobs. Yeah. 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 The best that I could figure was just that like, Exactly what you said in your question, people couldn't deal. They like lose their minds. Yeah. She was brilliant, a creative genius, business savvy, and also super hot. And then you add this, like the ultimate sexualized, desanctified symbol of the female form in, let's say, like the worst iterations of pornographic representation is the breast. And here she has these big Mm -hmm. ones. And I think it was just like, this is how we reduce her because you don't get to be all those things at once as a woman. You can either be the slut or you can be the smart girl or you can be the saint. You can't be like a pretty good, incredible artist and mine. Mm -hmm. And so they made her a boob joke. Totally. As you're talking, I'm also thinking about, I mean, this is not like breaking feminist news that like women are objectified. But I'm thinking about how often Tina Turner is described in terms of her legs or how often Jennifer Lopez is described in terms of her ass. And it seems to be particularly with these women who have a lot of dimensionality and a lot of multiplicity and so many talents going in so many different directions that for some reason, those are exactly the women that our culture is most eager to reduce to one asset. I'm using air quotes that our listeners will not be able to see. What does that make you think of? Do you think that's true? Do you think I'm totally off? No, I think you're spot on. And in fact, if you put together those three icons, you just added to the list, Tina Turner and Jennifer Lopez alongside Dolly Parton. What all three of them have in common is that they very, this isn't every woman's path. It isn't every feminist's choice, Mm -hmm. but what they chose to do with what they understood as brilliant people and smart business minds, a about the climate in which they were working was use it to their advantage. Market to the strength, yeah. All three of those women have put those, as you said, air quotes, assets on display intentionally and sort of 
flipped the power dynamic by saying, I am now using the system Mm -hmm. with my hotness rather than the system using me. And so it's sort of a paradox in that way. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of paradoxes about Dolly, but that's probably one of the defining one. Which is kind of a principle of hers, right? She comes up in these industries and then rather than sort of deconstruct them from the inside, turns around whether she works for them or they work for her, right? I mean, like, Nine to five, right? She's commented on the fact that it essentially she was channeling. I agree with you. You say in the book that her performance in that movie is by far the best of the three. And it's her debut, right? It's her first movie. And she's drawing on the way she had been objectified and reduced in the music industry, right? And so, but she turns that into this really kind of unprecedented crossover success in Hollywood. And similarly, right? I mean, like she has that remarkable quote. I'm not going to be able to do it justice about the nipping and tuck basically that she's dedicated to which is all about well you want this product Mm -hmm. and yes I will give that to you but I will also not be coy about it I will be the owner of this asset Mm. I think that the quote you might be referencing that's pretty famous is it costs a lot of money to look this cheap or that's one of them Mm -hmm. the point that you make reminds me of one of her most lucrative songwriting accomplishments is I Will Always Love You which is much Mm -hmm. more famous for its recording by Whitney Houston in the early 90s for The Bodyguard but as I write in the book she wrote that as a sort of like goodbye to her overbearing, abusive employer, Porter Wagner, who was a country singer in the 60s and 70s and who she joined as the sort of girl singer on his variety show. Mm -hmm. And so she writes this song as her, I'm signing off and I will always love you. And it was this gesture of grace because he didn't probably deserve as much. And then that song ends up, I mean, this made her so freaking rich, like Whitney Houston's recording of it, Dolly part in one of her early decisions was to keep the publishing for all of her music and to never sell those rights. Sarah, was there anybody famous who she might have refused to sell the rights to when they asked along the way? (laughs) I'm glad you asked, Laura, because... Indeed. Elvis Presley himself, who... You might have heard of a man named Elvis Presley. You might have heard of him. Speaking of icons, and and at the Mm -hmm. time, there wouldn't have been a bigger living legend, wanted to record I Will Always Love You. And she was, you know, super stoked about it. So this would have been in, like, maybe the mid-70s. You know, she's doing all right, but she's by no means a superstar. And she's certainly lower on the totem pole than Elvis when he comes along. And it's this (laughs) perceived as not only a great honor, but also you know, a business boon. And so they strategically waited his sort of management set until they showed up to record and they're like actually in studio and they're like, oh, by the way, to proceed with this, we're going to need to also own the rights and, you know, basically profit off of the publishing going forward. And she was like, uh, you know, I made this promise to myself that I would never roll that way. And, you know, her friends and even business advisors were saying, are you crazy? It's Elvis. Do whatever Elvis wants because, you know, like you're shipbird Dolly Parton and he's Elvis Presley. Her gut <laughs> said to stick to her guns and, and she did. Mm-hmm. And then that decision ended up being one of the most lucrative of her career in part because another icon, Whitney Houston, recorded it, what's largely regarded as one of the greatest pop music performances of all time. And every time that it makes a dollar, Dolly Parton gets part of it to this day. So <laughs> well, that's something really interesting. At the very end of the book, I have always adored Dolly Parton. And I only one of us has been to Dollywood and it's not me. It, it is true. I, I 
confess. Awesome. It's also a smart business venture because, oh boy, is it overpriced. It's wonderful. I re- definitely recommend it, but Dolly's not getting poorer yeah. from the price no. of admissions in, in Tennessee. You know, I always thought of it as a kind of rags to riches story, and to some extent it is. But as you point out in the book, the recognition is still, especially the way in which her songwriting kind of goes uncredited really into the 2010s at the point when she is kind of iconic beyond iconic is really kind of remarkable but i was sort of thinking in the back of my mind while she's not getting her dues in another way she is in the sense that she's making tons of money off this stuff and i feel like your book has this kind of double denouement where on the one hand you're like how dare you disrespect dolly is like well but at least you're you know making her unbelievably wealthy (laughs) felt to me like a story about someone both being undone by a structure to some extent but on the other hand knowing that in that process she will make out like a bandit would you say that or do you think that recognition has sort of caught up to the residuals by now Hmm. you know she never made any bones about it that she set out to get rich and famous and as you pointed out about the prices Mm -hmm. at dollywood she has made her decisions accordingly and quite successfully and also unapologetically which is another you know mark in favor of putting her in the feminism column even though she does doesn't necessarily apply that label to herself. She's never said sorry about getting rich and paradoxically the way that she's done it is by telling the story over and over about how she used to be poor. At this point, Mm. she's been rich for way more years than she was poor, but the songs haven't changed in their content, which is, you know, I don't think disingenuous. I think that's the experience that formed her. And it also happens to be one that she's really good at telling and one that gives voice to a group of people who don't often see themselves portrayed with dignity in popular culture. So it's a win-win. so stuck on that Elvis moment. And I felt this way when I read it too, because I'm just stuck in imagining, like imagine the fucking inner resources it takes to sit in a room when you are less famous than Elvis Presley and his like super big deal managers and be like, sorry, no, like I'm going to say no to you. And that means that Elvis is not going to record my song. And like, she can't see 20 years into the future that Whitney Houston's going to record that song. I guess There's just so much intrinsic confidence in that story, and confidence is a quality that fascinates me. So Sarah, I want to talk about the women in your life too, but before we do, can you just say a little bit about what your research revealed about like sort of that quality of confidence in Dolly Parton? Sure. And this is something that that people have asked her directly about before, I think, kind of whatever this thing is about you, where the hell did that come from, this this kid from a hauler in Mm -hmm. East Tennessee? And, you know, she is, on the one hand, to some extent, a religious person. I don't think, like, incredibly dogmatic about her Christianity, but she, you know, will often unabashedly reference a faith in a higher power that's through a Christian lens. At a deeper sense, I would to use a cliche, but one that I think is accurate, Mm -hmm. assert that she is foremost spiritual in that she has always had a sense of some purpose in her life. And she understood that her 
acknowledgement of her own self-worth was essential and foundational to enacting that purpose. You know, like I've talked about with in writing about women from my own working poor family in rural America, you aren't going to survive in a space like that unless you find a deep confidence. And and it's actually a quite common brazenness and the sort of mm-hmm. quick wit that she's known for and her gumption and spirit is incredibly familiar to me. It sort of stands out as this particular thing in a mostly urbanized popular culture lens, but in the place that I come, like I know so many women who act just like Dolly Parton. They might not be as brilliant as her and they might not be incredible musicians, but that same kind of like energetic signature is there. So I think it's truly just a, a product of where she comes from. A product of where she comes from also partially because, you know, a quick wit, a certain internal grit, like those are all survival instincts, right? You know, and I think that you connect that really beautifully to your own story in both your books. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the icon that is Grandma Betty and how she seems to have sort of served as a North Star for both of your books and especially the Dolly Parton book. (laughs) Well, thank you first for even allowing me to bring forth the women from my own family into this discussion. And there are countless Mm. families across the country and around the world who would belong in the same frame. Right. You know, I was raised largely by my grandmother, who is uh, just about precise contemporary of Dolly Parton's. They were born just a few months apart. And so they were coming of age and going through the same, you know, life passages at the same moments, but with very different outcomes. So where Dolly Parton left poor East Tennessee for Nashville and slowly made her way through the music industry and became a rich and famous superstar. Meanwhile, my grandmother, Betty, who was born in poverty in Kansas, was more living the life of the stories that Dolly Parton was telling in her music. In songs. So yeah. she was waiting tables in diners and getting beat up by unfortunate male partners and having no healthy recourse when she became pregnant and being shamed for teen pregnancies and Dolly Parton's darker earlier song, which are actually quite gothic in nature from the 1970s Mm -hmm. are really her kind of like grappling with what she had very narrowly escaped as a female essentially. And what she very narrowly escaped is what my grandma Betty was living. She also just happened to be also blonde and to my mind attractive and quite provocative in the way she dressed. She was wearing mini skirts before that was acceptable in places like Kansas and catching hell for it along the way. So the themes of my grandma's life and then she, you know, was a teenager when she had my mother and my mother was a teenager when she had me. Hence my grandma was kind of a second mom just in terms of her age. I understood somehow at like a cellular level that when she popped a Dolly Parton tape into the deck and Dolly's singing about Code of Many Colors or she's singing about her challenges as a woman. These were things Mm -hmm. that like my grandma understood very intimately, not just like in a metaphoric way, but like in a literal way. Mm. 
How did you learn or observe that your grandma understood what was in those songs? Like, did you observe her react when you were a child or was that something you pieced together later? It's pretty easy for me to answer this because I have a pretty visceral memory. I come from a very stoic people. We are Mm -hmm. Midwestern. We're rural. We're German Catholics. We're like so many layers of don't show emotion or needs. (laughs) Adrian sighs in German. (laughs) (laughs) And specifically when Code of Many Colors, of course, one of Mm -hmm. Dolly's most famous songs would come on, my grandma would cry. And she, I mean, shit, this woman didn't cry like when there was just blatant direct affronts to her Mm -hmm. person. And usually, you know, she would respond with that sort of Dolly bravado, like a defensive humor or a, or a quick wit or a sharp mouth or whatever. But in the moments when she was connecting with that song in particular, she cried. And honestly, I can only think of a very small handful of other times that I have seen Mm. a tear go down the woman's cheek. And so that's all I needed to know about how she was connecting to those stories. I definitely still can't listen to that song without crying. And I don't even know how many times I've heard it at this point in my life. It's a tearjerker. I guess I wanted to talk about your mom a little bit too, who is no longer with us, but hovers so strongly over both of these works. How, how did she interact with these pages, both in your process of writing and in your just emotional processing around it? Oh, wow. You know, I'm not sure that I've ever really pondered that question, but it's, it's real. Just the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that is I dedicated my first book Heartland to my mom because, Mm -hmm. you know, to my mind, she's sort of her life in so many ways is kind of like the story that I wanted to, my grandmother, Betty is, I think kind of like the star of that book, but but my my mom's life and the intimacy with which the closeness with which i understood the ways that being mm-hmm. female being pregnant young being poor being brilliant but having very few opportunities how all of those things interplayed to create the challenges of her life i wrote it for the young version of my mother that she might read the book and feel seen and so that book is dedicated to her the dolly book is actually dedicated to my grandmother because for all the reasons I've described that they're sort of like these twin energies in my mind. But as for how my my mom relates to this story and the narrative of She Come By It Natural has everything to do with music, actually. So mm. she was much more of a music aficionado than my grandmother or anyone else in my family. In fact, we were sort of the two only people in our family that were really, you know, read books voraciously and experienced music as a form of poetry rather than Mm -hmm. just entertainment. And she would kind of like use music, most often country music sung by a woman, not unlike Dolly Parton, to communicate with me. So she, there'd be some song about, you know, something you got to watch out for about men. And she'd be like, listen to the words of this song. She wouldn't impart that wisdom to me directly because mm-hmm. of the aforementioned challenges with openness in the culture. Of I was going to say that's class. very direct communication for the Midwest. Like that's as direct as it gets, I think. <laughs> yeah. But she kind of used music as an instructional tool tool. And I'm so grateful for that. And when I look back, it's so beautiful. And it is why, you know, my mom didn't get to go to college. She had the mind and the vocabulary of a real intellectual just by way of reading Mm -hmm. and her capacities. But 
she never sat in a classroom where anyone was talking about feminist theory, and yet she exemplified so many of its tenets just organically without anyone having to teach it to her. One of the ways that manifested is that she loved music with a, a strong female voice, and she modeled that for me as like something you ought to have jamming in your living room when mm. you're cleaning the floors. In fact, I say in the book that country music by women mm-hmm. was like the formative feminist text of my life. And that's absolutely because of my mother. There's an amazing moment in the book where Dolly Parton comes face to face with Lean In and is asked whether she's ever leaned in. And her answer, I mean, it's characteristically kind of cheeky, but ultimately, I think your book provides a really good answer for why that interviewer either had no sense whatsoever or actually a really good sense of humor. Because I feel like you present her as a feminist trailblazer who never had a choice, right? Who basically, if she was going to make her way, was going to be in this kind of dissident way by manipulating kind of these forces around her and never had an option to sort of be like, how do I want to enter the music industry? How do I want to, right? It's to say it is what it is and I will make it work for or around myself as best as possible. I just thought it was a moment where that's your sort of your feminist text and it is one that really speaks to a very different kind of sensibility about what it means to enter a space, right? Uh, Sheryl Sandberg's book being kind of about, this is not something I have a choice in, right? Like, I have to find a way to be in this space, to exist in this space. Tolly's like, bitch, I've been here since 1965. (laughs) Exactly, right? um... Yeah. Oh my God, Adrian, that is so well put. And actually, I had never quite thought about it in those terms, but you're right that what's going on in that moment of the interview where she's like, what do you think about Lean In? And Dolly's like, the hell is Lean In? Like what's going on there is that when like survival is the only air that you've ever breathed in a male dominated space as a strong woman, like it's preferable to have a language to articulate it. And the articulation of inequities is much of the work of activism and the study of social justice. But like for somebody like Dolly who connects with it experientially, it's like, what are you talking about? That's just life. (laughs) Right. Yeah, Sarah, so like like you, and, and something that I think I've always bonded with in your work, I grew up around a lot of really bright, hardworking women who would never self-identify as feminists. And now I'm a feminist working in the academy, which is like a paradox to be pondered within therapy. But I also I also am curious as to your perspective as to like Are there things that the feminist academy can be doing better to make itself more accessible? Like, obviously, some of this is just a question of access to education at a base level. But are there changes that you would wish for from the feminist academy itself? I guess there's a couple things. You know, one is the kind of class points that I make about feminism in the book. It isn't really intended to be a critique of the academy in that the academy is what it is and its strengths are on display in theory and the development of new language and new ways of thinking. Meanwhile, what I'm really putting forth is rather than a critique of that realm is more of like, but let's also hold up and recognize as experts in a different way, this other type of feminist that Dolly Parton exemplifies. Right. But as to your question, I think that 
And this is a pretty predictable answer for a professional wordsmith. But to me, if the intention is to connect with a broader kind of ecosystem of women who are interested in the advancement of their gender, the one easiest fix for building bridges would be to watch the extent to which, where applicable in terms of the space that you're occupying, the extent to which your language is exclusive and even prohibitive. You learned that language in an academic space, and that probably mm-hmm. means there's a way to say your point that's more accessible. And then I'm, I guess I might add to that just the desire even to ever build those bridges to begin with. I think a lot of times, you know, I'm a former professor myself right. and not in gender theory, but an, an English professor. And, and I know that those spaces can become kind of like little swirling eddies where we eat on one another's energy and ideas and, and forget the applied world out there. But there are, oh, are yeah. actually far more women whose connection to feminist ideals is like Dolly's mm-hmm. than is like a professor's. So if we are caring about all women, then we should always have them and connection with their world in mind. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas and Isabella Tilly. All our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman that none of us have seen recently, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. And we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues there, Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, and Sarah Mersney. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. We'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars on iTunes or another platform to help other folks join our discussion. 